Welcome to our new podcast, Discovering Community Psychology, a podcast hoping to make community psychology ideas and practice more accessible. Throughout our first mini-series, we'll be speaking with numerous psychology professionals about their work, highlighting and celebrating variety and the impact of their positive practice, influenced by community psychology ideas and values. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Yasmin and I'm a trainee clinical psychologist. And tonight my co-host is... My name is Sam. I'm also a trainee clinical psychologist. And we're joined tonight by a couple of folks from our community psychology group who are going to listen into our chat. And at the end, they're going to have a chance to ask a couple of questions. And joining us tonight, we have Sally, who is a clinical and community psychologist and a community activist. Um, Welcome, Sally. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you begin by telling us a bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, Thank you for inviting me on. I feel very honoured and excited for this new collective of people getting excited by community psychology. Uh, It's great to see. So, um, yeah, I'm Sally. I'm trained as a clinical psychologist in uh, 2007 to 2010. and then quite quickly, never really practiced as a clinical psychologist and uh, kind of immediately began a career that, was, that had clinical psychology in it, but also was much more focused on community psychology. Um, that started in an organization that I was part of kind of the beginnings of called Mac UK, which is a, a charity based in London uh, where I've been working ever since really, or, albeit with different, in different roles and um, in, with other jobs alongside. Um, so at the moment at Mac UK, I'm Director of Public Health and Prevention. Um, but as I say, there's been lots of different parts of that journey at Mac UK. Uh, I'm sure I'll come on and talk a bit more about that. Um, and alongside I've had other types of jobs and roles. So I'm currently at an organization called Nesta as well, which is a much bigger charity. Um, It's a kind of think tank, a research organization, um, and is also a funder. And it's all around the ideas of social innovation and uh, innovation for social good is the kind of strap line. Um, I'm, I'm in what's called the health lab, which, so we've been looking at, or all, all, all aspects of health innovation that are essentially people powered. Um, although that area of work is coming to an end, but my role in the last uh, couple of years has been working on a, a move, on a program called Social Movements for Health. So they're my current two jobs. <laughs> and then I've had other different roles along the way. Yeah, and hopefully we'll kind of hear about some of those along the way in this, in this time. And I think as well, one of the things that stands out is how many things you're involved in and breaking the mold of maybe what a clinical psychologist is expected to do or the different things that people could get involved in, which is exciting. And I'm sure hopefully we'll get onto all of those things. Yeah, sure. I guess that's my more paid work. And then like many other people here and everywhere, um, I'm also involved in activism in various ways, which I'll is obviously not paid work, but is, I, is definitely a part of my professional and personal identity. 
as it is for many other people. I was going to ask if, if possible, as I'm super interested in the activism as well, but um, I was really intrigued by the work at Nesta that you described, because that sounds like very, so different to, I guess I'm coming at clinical psychology from that very like NHS um, individualized kind of model. And that sounds like such a, just a move away from that. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit more about what that, what that entails? Not at all. No, it's definitely uh, it definitely is a move away from the kind of individualizing therapeutic work of clinical psychology. What Nesta's been about is really how do you support and incubate, for want of a better term, um, people who are directly affected by health inequalities to enable them to build a movement? So, uh, and a movement that challenges those health inequalities. So we, uh, my colleague and I have been um, overseeing this program, which basically we asked for people to come forward and uh, be part of an assessment process, but it, to, to enable them to have a grant, which would allow them to build these movements. And along, along the way, they would, we'd support them to get lots of other different types of um, training and capacity building and all sorts of other things that they can benefit from to really have impact as a, as a social movement. So some of some of those movements are, you know, just so incredible. So it's people with, uh, living with learning disabilities who are pushing for more self-advocacy um, or self-advocates. Um, it's it's um, black queer men who are um, raising the issue of mental health inequalities in, in their uh, community and building essentially a community that's not geographical or place-based, but it's actually um, actually a lot of their meetings, a lot of their support, a lot of their work is done um, online or digitally and, and through apps and things like this. So very, very much uh, kind of a 21st century movement. Um, and events, they have a lot of events in different um, amazing kind of arts organizations so they've worked with the national portrait gallery um, and it's all about raising their visibility as as black queer men and how they can support each other and how they can get services to support them better um, there's another group um, in brighton um, who are in the kind of disadvantaged east end of Bright east area of brighton and feel very angry at the health and educational inequalities in their community underserved they feel underserved by the local authority and they feel unheard in what is otherwise quite a rich and um, city. So they've been building their own community-led grassroots movement, focusing on getting people involved locally, activities, everything from um, inclusive astronomy for, for children and young people um, to uh, yeah, park runs, getting more people active, to creating their own food cooperative which they give out free and healthy meals to to their uh, to their local to local residents and people and and really trying to also get heard at a kind of you know citywide level about how unfairly they feel uh, treated essentially uh, they've been an incredibly inspiring uh, movement to work alongside so it's it's marginalised communities who are really raising raising their voices to. Uh, to, yeah to challenge whatever it is that needs challenging the, the last one i'll mention actually is um it's, it's a professional care workers so it's uh, the professionalization of care work so it's 
being led by care workers who really want to see better conditions for, so, for social care workers, um, uh, regulation, so some sort of professionalisation, like taking care workers on the journey that nurses actually went through, um, you know, however many years ago, um, so that they are actually better paid, they have those conditions, they're not at the mercy of private companies so much. So, and that's being led by care workers themselves to push for those conditions. So you can start to see how, although the, uh, working in Nestor, I'm not on the front line of that work, you can start to see how as a community psychologist, how that fits in. Because for me, community psychology is all about collective action. It's all about social injustice. It's about inequalities and how we're tackling them. And my role as a psychologist, it's it's you can use your knowledge and skills and experiences of a psychologist in so many different ways on a program like that, whether it's, you know, the more obvious ways, which are like think, helping the, the groups and the movements to think about how they're, think about self-care, think about collective care, which are the kind of what most people think about when you think about your role as a psychologist. Um, but also, you know, broader than that about how you, how they might talk to services, you know, what, um, research and evidence and thinking differently about about research and evidence and how you can bring in participatory methods of research where people themselves are much more involved in the um, forming the research questions and then finding out what the answers are to those research questions um, so yeah lo lots of different ways that's just a couple of ways but uh, it's for me they that's at the heart of um, all of my work as a community psychologist is really how are we giving the platform over to marginalized communities and how are we, how are we as psychologists enabling um, others to lead where we can in movements like that. Yes it really sounds like it and I think you said um, there's a phrase you use that we hear a lot I think in psychology is that working alongside but it's questionable mm -hmm. sometimes about how much working alongside we actually do and that that feels like a like a very different kind of perspective in terms of like whose whose voice has been privileged is that's exactly yeah yeah Thank you. yeah for sure um we we to come back as i i that was my um curiosity <laughs> brought us off no, um, come not at all. Come, i'm glad i got a chance to talk about <laughs> yeah, it yeah it's it's super interesting um coming back then as well because when i jumped in to cut, cut you off there um to ask about that you were mentioning about um, activism um, that you see as something that is something that you do in your private that's not paid um, that's something that you do but that it's still very much part of your professional identity is that what you said yeah yeah so I mean my my route into community psychology was um, this might come up in another question so I won't go into too much detail but my was my my frustration at obviously the lack of political um, thinking within mainstream psychology, not, not just clinical psychology, but actually all um, applied psychology. And I, I, I talk about this sometimes in terms of like the only time during my whole, so I did psychology undergraduate, uh, psychology and philosophy undergraduate, a psychology A-level. Um, and the only time that I came across any political kind of mention was when we were doing um, the Thatcher illusion uh, when we were learning about visual um, 
how the brain processes faces. And there's a pic two pictures of Margaret Thatcher where you see her the right way around and you see her the wrong way around. And you you kind of there's there's a there's a kind of illusion around uh, why she, she looks different upside down, and it's all about how we process faces in the brain. It's got nothing to do with politics, actually. But that was literally the only time I saw a political figure in in psychology, and I had this whole other world alongside that I was part of from an early age and um, of activism and fighting for social justice, whether it started as feminism move to environmentalism and climate change and wider social justice issues as again as many people do and I was I couldn't I've never couldn't quite make out why I was interested in psychology interested in, in obviously bringing about social justice but but they they never met or they never seemed to meet until I came across community psychology um so activism has always been part of my uh kind of life and it once I discovered community psychology, I started to realize that there's an opportunity to bring these two different fields of interest together. Um, and I suppose it, training as a clinical psychologist, you're trained up for the NHS. And again, the NHS is only political from a very top-down perspective. And it's not encouraged, I mean, Again, clinical psychology training, there was very little training included on the structures of the NHS, how the NHS operates, the, you know, the different private companies involved in the NHS, or anything that gave you a general sense of the politics and the, the wider landscape of how the NHS works. You had to do all of that on your own in the background if you were interested in it. Um, so I felt very much kind of restricted by that uh, by that route, by that career route. And I realized, well, you know, there are things that you can do definitely, and I'll come on to that within an NHS role, if you are working in the NHS or, or, in, or in a local authority, there's definitely things you can do. But actually I realized my passion for bringing the economic and political and social together with what I was learning about in terms of psychological distress had to be done actually, or would be better done outside of um, formal structures and services. So I was part of a, a, there was a couple of us who back in 2014, 15, when austerity was, you know, a really big issue in the UK, before Brexit, <laughs> and before, um, you know, before COVID, obviously, and austerity was what, every, what was the issue at hand. And we all knew that austerity was having a devastating impact on people and on communities and on services. And we all were living that. Um, I was working with a lot of young people, um, very excluded young people who were, you know, experiencing that very much firsthand in lots of different ways, whether it was the cutting of youth centres or, um, you know, the way that their welfare was being reformed. Um, so we realized that we had to do something as psychologists, but outside the system. And so we started at that point, Psychologists Against Austerity, which has now become Psychologists for Social Change. And that's all, that form of activism where you're kind of drawing on your professional identity and your professional knowledge and experience, but it's still activism, is, is actually kind of where a lot of my time has gone over the last few years alongside, but using that as a platform to work alongside other activist groups, as well as using what we know as psychologists in terms of 
writing briefing papers, contacting our MPs, writing open letters, sort of showing, trying to show leadership on the social and economic determinants of, of, of psychological health and well-being. Um, so yeah, that's been you know exciting work, difficult, and lots of meetings, lots of emails, um, as is ever in activism. Also, uh, an amazing way of working collectively, I think, with others. I think that's really great that you found a way as well to kind of speak about the things that are very real issues that impact on people's lives and that lead to a, to distress for a lot of people. And also to find a way to bring together your professional and your personal identities and the way that ways that you wanted to work because I, I can imagine for a lot of people if they haven't seen people that are working that way they might not think to do that or they might kind of feel apprehension about doing that but seeing it be done um I think is really important so that's yeah um could you tell us a little bit about how you bring community psychology values and ideas into your practice and what facilitates that and what are some of the challenges of that? Yeah, sure. So I suppose the best example or the easiest example for me to talk about is from uh, our work at Mac UK. So Mac UK is all about trying to transform services and specifically, I suppose, mental health services for the most excluded young people in London. Um, and by that, we've worked by that, I mean, we've worked with mostly young men who are affected by violence or are care leavers or in the care system, often have obviously those two interlink, um, or they're in the criminal justice system in some way, often sort of labeled as gang members. Uh, I don't, we don't use that term. Um, and very much, very far and very much away from trusting statutory services, whether that's the NHS or the local authority. Uh, there's both psychological barriers in terms of not trusting the people who work there, and that manifests in not wanting to share their identities, for example. And there's geographical barriers. So young people can't always get to the places that services are based um, for reasons of uh, risk or um, just not being able to get there. So, so there's lots of different ways that our mental health services are designed very badly um, for the most excluded young people and indeed designed badly full stop actually <laughs> quite often um, for, for multiple reasons. Uh, you know, even for example, how just at a very basic level, like we all know a big factor or a big effect of feeling very low in mood, feeling very sad and in despair or suicidal is that you don't really want to leave your, certainly your house, possibly your bed. You don't have motivation. It doesn't feel easy to get up and go and meet a new person and start talking about your problems. And yet that's exactly what's expected um, of people. And as a sort of, you know, policies around referrals and thresholds and discharges in the NHS which just feel really can can often feel really dehumanizing for people who are in distress I think so I think there's a lot that we've learned in Mac UK in terms of how we redesign 
services for the most excluded young people, which are also very applicable in other ways um, and in other for other groups and populations. And I suppose the process through which we've been redesigning services and innovating around um, how you work in partnership with marginalized uh, young, young people is through co the process of co-production and the process of really being on the ground where young people are, going to them, meeting them where they're at, not expecting uh, people to come to us as professionals and not expecting them to uh, just have a referral and see it through. And, and really turning that on its head and actually saying it's our job as professionals to get out to those people who might need support in a different way, um, who might have a lot of this, who often have the solutions to the issues that are facing them, but need facilitation to allow that to happen. So our work has been about working really um, at the, in the heart of communities, not in sort of GP surgeries and I think that's often a issue that gets confused in community psychology is it's not about psychology in the community alone. Um, so it's not about just not being based, you know, being based in a sure start center or what were sure start centers or it's, there's much more to it than that. Although I think being in the heart of the community has been a big part of our, our work and, and process, but that means also being on the streets and, being with youth workers and uh, detached youth workers who might be walking around who hold relationships with young people it might be yeah there's a whole range of ways where you're you are literally we've literally been on the streets in the past um and then the the other part aspect of it is to really understand people and young people in the context of their communities so it's not just about them as individuals uh trying to get them to stop offending uh, or to feel better about themselves or to have higher self-esteem or have higher confidence as it often gets talked about. It's much more about understanding that people um, in the context of what is going on in our communities. Um, there's deprivation, there's inequality, there's racism, there's discrimination, there's stop and search for these young men. There's experience after experience of um, being excluded potentially from education, potentially from youth centers. Um, there's obviously experiences of violence and trauma and all of these things we'd expect to obviously affect people's uh, well-being and, and, and health. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's really understanding that formulation or that uh, full person in context. And it's also about understanding how young people are in a peer group. So we'll work with a whole peer group. And it's not a referral from professionals that young people come uh, and get involved. It's because another young person has invited them along. So we call it a peer referral process. Um, but that was designed by young people. They said, don't let, don't be, you know, inviting in some other young person from another area that we don't know to come and get involved because we don't know them. So they might be offending. We don't that, but that's their thing. We don't know who they are, so we can't. They can't get involved. <laughs> um, which sounds, you know, maybe it sounds exclusionary, but actually, that's where young people are at. And in fact, they were then went on to say, if this is really, if we really have ownership over this project, then we'll bring the young people that you need to 
you need to meet. Um, and we know who they are and we want, we want to support them too. And that's another big redesign aspect is really understanding people as the solutions and what they bring as opposed to seeing them as problems to be solved. And for me, that's another real core principle of community psychology is seeing people as they have many of the answers. Um, and, it, and it's a partnership. You know, we don't pretend that as a psychologist or as, as youth workers or don't bring anything to the table, but there's de it's definitely about that sense of facilitating. And so, for example, there's loads of incredibly talented young people who work, you know, around music or sport or, um, you know, the arts more widely. And if you give them the opportunity to, uh, you know, to, to get involved in music or give them the opportunity to have some resources to, to buy it, to design a, a small or music studio in a, in a in a place that they trust, then that's the starting point for long-term relationships and conversations. And that's how we kind of work in partnership with them. So there might be activities, but alongside there's a building of a relationship that's, that's at the heart of it. And then I suppose the other aspect of how I really think about community psychology and practice is how are we changing those communities and those wider determinants of psychological health. So all those things that I mentioned around poverty and inequality and racism, we have to be part of changing that. It's not enough for someone to feel a little bit better um, because we've supported them by listening or, or supporting them therapeutically. I don't doubt that that is important, but we must also be working on those wider determinants as we talked about in terms of activism. And so at Mac UK, we see it as part of our role as psychologists to also be working at the policy level in partnership with young people, responding to government policies, meeting MPs, meeting councillors, getting those councillors and MPs to the projects um, where young people are. You know, we've done lots and lots of different work projects in partnership with the local authorities um, where they've wanted to talk to young people um, but didn't know how to create those relationships. But there's got to be, that's got to be uh, really well thought out and done well. Otherwise it can, you know, um, be tricky if it, if it sort of, if young people feel like they're just not really being heard, they're just being tokenistically consulted, they can spot it a mile off. Um, and many other groups as well, you know, not just young people. They know when people are being tokenistic about, um, comes you know when it's consultation and not full co-production and co-production is designing and delivering services in partnership with um, those people directly affected um, and that that's one part of community psychology is those ideas but that collective action and and really trying to transform and prevent further distress is again how we think about how do we put that into practice in partnership with young people. Um, and we employ young people in lots of different roles within Mac UK and within the projects that we're part of. So that gives you, I hope, some of the flavor of kind of the ways at Mac UK we apply the ideas. Um, 
and there's lots of different ways that you can apply those principles but fundamentally it's about working towards social justice as well as working towards collective healing or um, collective peer support in some way. I think as you were speaking then Sally it really struck me how involved young people are in what you do in, at Mac UK. If young people are engaging in this way why do you think that this way of working or designing services isn't done more widely? So the last few years of our kind of work at Mac UK we've moved we strategically tried to move away from being the service deliverers ourselves. We 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 showed in a number of different communities within London that it can work these new ways of working that you can engage 150 200 young men you can make a difference to the community and hopefully their lives as sort of said told by them um, I'm not claiming it's perfect of course <laughs> in any way you know or that it's not difficult of course and that there aren't challenges and that you know you get you know nobody ever you know, goes on to experience any further discrimination, for example, you know, or anything like that. But um, I guess we we showed that it was a really, you know, useful way of approaching this issue. And so then we moved strategically to thinking about how do we disseminate this to statutory services? We don't want to be filling a gap that actually statutory services should be doing. Um, because lots of charities are in that space, understandably, of filling gaps that services, statutory services uh, can't meet. But for us, there is an equity issue and a justice issue at the heart of the fact that if you need an extra charity to be supporting marginalised young people's you know, mental health, then there's something wrong in the system. And so for us, it's about changing the system as well. And we've been, I suppose, struggling and trying to get to the root of that very question around how do we embed this practice into other services and, and whether that, again, local authority, mostly we've been trying with, and also actually with other community and voluntary sector organisations who are bigger than us and um, you know provide services on a bigger scale, um, especially in social, children's homes and children's social care. Um, and it's tough, you know, because it, there's a set of system um, incentives that say, you know, you need to have done, it's not about how good the relationship is for your, it's about, you know, how are you meeting a legal requirement? You know, are you, um, the, 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 indicators of what's a good service might not match what we would see as indicators of a good service and so you're in, against this competing agenda and it's not that their indicators aren't there for a reason they've developed over time um uh, especially in sort of social care you know it's important that certain legal things are, are happening but you can see where their gaps are and you can start when so we've been working as embedded teams within other organizations as a way of seeing if we can support them from the inside out so to speak um to change their practice and it yeah so it's about changing the system levers and the system incentives as well as changing individual practitioners practice um 
both of which take time. So we've also you know, tried other strategies, teaching on doctoral training courses for trainee clinical psychologists, writing obviously papers and reports on how the ways of working, again, trying to go further, even further upstream to policy and a lot um, and a lot of our work in the sort of between 2011 after the what were called the riots um, of 2011 to like 2015, a lot of our work was really about influencing the Home Office to how they would they they, they started a program called Ending uh, Gang and Youth Violence, and we were really involved in trying to influence um, at that level what was happening in terms of how they were suggesting, you know, the strategy for what they, what they thought needs to happen to end youth violence. And we really made a great case for the impact of, um, you know, uh, mental health, for example. Um, and they took, the government did take that and it's, we're in a lot of policy documents making the case about how, you know, underserved these groups of young people are in, in terms of their well-being and mental health. Um, but that's easy for them to say compared to, you know, really tackling some of the root causes of that in terms of poverty and inequality. And, um, you know, we were dealing with Theresa May as the home, what, you know, the home office secretary. Am I thinking the right phrase? Anyway, um, and, you know, so there's a lot of, that, lots of, um, there's a million miles from <laughs> between us. So a lot of the time you're working to try and create strategically the best arguments you can for, for, for shifting towards co-production, for shifting towards redesigning services and, um, and then sneaking in, kind of subversing this idea of, you know, cha also changing, you know, transformation of communities, um, uh, trying to get that in alongside uh, because recognizing that that's a really important part of young people's experiences. And I think it's come in more and more now through the kind of trauma-informed narrative. Um, and I think there's been a collective movement towards talking about obviously adverse childhood experiences and talking about trauma-informed practice. We don't say trauma-informed practice, although that's what we have been doing. We talk about psychologically informed practice because then we can talk about community psychology. My worry about trauma-informed practice ends up back into um, quite clinical one-to-one -one, um, therapeutic practices. So we really try and broaden that. And we haven't yet come up with a way of describing that better. I don't think we need to do, we need to do a bit of communication work, sorry. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question, but um, I think the more and more examples that people can create on a small scale within statutory services to show that it's possible. Um, when I was working for a local authority um, and I was involved in an early intervention, kind of, again, suppose use of the word gang. So working with sort of nine to 12 year old young men, sorry, young men, young boys, who um, were often the siblings of young men who were already involved in gangs. Um, again, I question the use of the word gangs. Just I say it because you know it makes it it's clear, but I wouldn't use it normally. Um, 
so yeah and i guess the work that we were doing was kind of group work and in or individual work with the family as a psych this was as a clinical psychologist as a, as a with the family the parents and with the child and then group work with the with the with the children and that was that was great you know but there was a lot more that could be done and um one of the things me and a trainee who were on who was on placement with me at the time we started work one of the mums I hope this is a useful example of like ways I'm telling this story it's ways of that you can find ways in to community psychology even when you're in a kind of more statutory setting so one of the mums um her had started her own um foundation um on the back of on the back of um a, a something happening to one of her sons and was trying to do community-based work, working across postcodes that were, you know, where young people were, were in um, conflict with each other. And she was trying to reach the parents and uh, of the other post, parents from the other postcode. And she just, as a psychologist, it, 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 was, it was just clear to me that she had so much energy and so much, so many skills to bring and as well as the motivation and the lived experience that was crucial to an understanding um, other parents, for example, and what we, they might be going through or experiencing. And so part of our work also incorporated supporting her to set up the foundation to get some funding to help her think about who she might want to connect with in the community to help her with networking and just any other ways that we could think of that we could support her to get this kind of found community foundation off, off, off the, the ground where she was already, it was, it was already going, but supporting it. And so just finding those and, and then just, you know, finding that as a way of saying, well, actually, this is a good use of my time because there's possible she's going to prevent things happening in the future. And actually working in local authorities, I think you've got even more um, opportunities to do that kind of community-based thinking. It's just about making the case and, and starting to do it, sneaking it in, and then it becoming more and more of a thing if you can. I really liked what you said about kind of recognising that people have the the answers and, and in that example that you gave just then as well, recognising that the lady, all it needed was kind of support, but she otherwise was doing what she needed to do for herself, which is really good. I know that you um, are also interested in the environment and the economy and different things like that. Does community psychology interact with that? Do you carry over any of your values to that work or does it inform your work in psychology? Oh yeah, gosh, I could talk about this for, for a long time. Um, yeah, it absolutely does. I mean, obviously you can't have ecological justice and climate justice without social justice in terms of the global south and actually as well as in, within this country but um a lot of community psychologists are interested in international issues um they're not just based in the uk doing work with marginalized communities here but might be um working at you know in the global south um i went off and and again this is something i'd you know always if you can get an opportunity to do this, I went on sabbatical and went and worked in South Africa for a while where they do amazing critical community psychology work. Um, and then 
there's yeah lots of other places lots of different other other different african countries um and also in south america um where in south america there's a, it, the origins of community psychology or, or, and liberation psychology so it's kind of more how they work anyway um i haven't actually been to do it in south america but a few few people i know have um and so going and learning from those other countries is incredibly important in terms of the the uk i think um so i've re recently become really interested in something that's called community wealth building which is comes from economists and kind of left lefty economists and progressive economists um but and and for me this is really an important area and and I, I i could also talk about collective trauma and collective healing but i'll come back to that so and and just for for, for me like the area of where um the economy meets our psychology is is really interesting and to date that's mostly been done like by behavioral economists or uh you know um where it's but i think i won't go into that but where where there's there's this meeting of like where people are trying to do things differently at a local level with how you can build community wealth and community wealth building is a, a model from the united states that's also being applied now in the uk it's famously been tried by preston local authority it's um also happening in my own borough of hackney um in newham in north ayrshire in scotland and it's basically the local authorities take taking despite the kind of whatever ha is happening at a national economic level they're saying how do we use all of the power and systems that we have kind of control over so to speak how do we use those that power differently so that wealth is not extracted from our communities but is actually um, remains and is inclusive and is inclusively spread throughout our communities so for example you know a lot of people are their jobs are dependent on um you know a, a corporation that's based in a certain area and that they're often hold often they have no you know people don't have any uh much, so you know very good conditions in those jobs they don't have any sort of control over those jobs there's always this fear that the corporation or the business can move out of an area and that they then all those jobs are lost so you're almost at, held hostage by these kind of businesses um and of course i i don't want to, businesses are important in terms of providing jobs but but there's other ways of doing it and so that and then the other thing about those big corporations and businesses um the big businesses who have power over is that they extract that labor and they extract the profits and they tax evade and then that goes their their headquarters are in another country and they make a lot of money you know there's some obvious ones whose names i won't say but i'm sure you can all think of um and you know they that so the 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 labor is provided by a local community but they don't see the benefits of that and they have no ownership over that and they're actually constantly worried about their jobs especially if they're precarious work so 
local authorities now are, are starting to view themselves as anchor institutions. So they are organized, anchor institutions or organizations that are based in a local community or in a place, a city, and aren't going to be leaving. And they might provide some jobs or do provide jobs. Um, so public service is institutions are the obvious ones. So um, yeah, local authorities, NHS hospitals, um, or and also things like universities, they're not gonna get up and leave anytime soon. But how could they change um, those that what they have own control over to to make sure that wealth stays locally and to give people local jobs? So this is where I think it gets interesting in terms of the overlap with community psychology. So they might, for example, in the famous example from the U.S., there was they said, okay, we are procuring for our say the social care homes that we run, we're procuring laundry um, services from a big corporation. Actually, what if we helped set up, what if we helped local people set up their own laundry cooperative, which they had ownership of control over, and then they, su they supply our laundry services. That's one example. So there's now a famous laundry cooperative in the US in this city, Cleveland, where they were um, providing this, this service. Anyway, my point is that cooperatives, for example, where people have democratic ownership over their organization is a really interesting participatory um, experience for people and more secure and they have power and decision making. And community psychology, that's, many of those principles are the same. Um, and there's a way, uh, the problem with community wealth building, as I see it at the moment, it's not a problem, but it's, it, it needs working on is, how do you talk about this in ways that mean people see it as also a part of a health initiative, see it as part of a well-being initiative, see it as all of these things which you can do. And I've only touched on a little bit of all the different ways that community wealth building works, but cooperatives, could be a psychological health intervention, you know, because of all the reasons that I just said, they give people power, ownership, security. Um, they help people work together more closely. They create connections in the community. They network people together. They create cohe more cohesive um, organizations. And all of those things are gonna be good for people. So where that we need as community psychologists to start linking in some of these ideas together how do we talk about collective well-being how do we talk about community well-being which also connects to creating a more just and equitable economic system and at the moment a lot of that is being led by economists and and, and actually psychologists have a lot of to say about this kind of stuff and the economists are you know need to make a stronger case around health and well-being because i think that speaks to people a lot more and the other thing, just to bring it back to climate change, is that the other aspect of community wealth building is that so procurement, for example, and again, I'm just using procurement as one example of the principle of community wealth building, but say you're procuring your laundry service from, local, from a local cooperative, there's no travel involved, you're, the, there's emissions are cut down, um, and people are more, local people are more likely to not be using these kind of bulk processes and actually be more aware of their of sustainability and that's true in the food se sector as well so they started to uh, think about local people providing food and food uh, cooperatives and again so you 
cut down your growing um growing projects so local food growing that are then supplied uh to the local authority for example by an employment by local people so it kind of builds in multiple different solutions um and so the other aim of community wealth building is that it's very much got climate change uh thinking designed into the principles as well there's loads i could say about this <laughs> that was a very long explanation <laughs> yeah. It made... yeah no it's it's I think it makes perfect sense and it's really interesting it's it kind of links in really well to like to one of the things I was thinking because especially um with everything that's happened this year and thinking about covid and just that the like the the impact of that like economically yeah. and for communities and the more the longer we go on in regional lockdowns and the the economic inequality that's that's just naturally going to arise from that how do you think community psychology um can kind of help us in post-COVID mm. future, mm. if that exists, post-COVID future. <laughs> Hopefully it exists in some form. Um, I mean, I definitely, so uh, yeah, I think it's a really good question. I definitely think, so I've been working a bit with um, Hackney Council um, about the, on their strategies around um, the wellbeing strategies uh, at a borough level. Um, and there's other... So that's another way that psychologists can get involved is actually, you know, looking at local authority strategies, looking at commissioning strategies. How are people, how are commissioners uh, thinking about their population level, well-being and, and mental health? Um, and that's going on all over the country at the moment because people are um, in, you know, people are worried about the community level um, the rising distress um and so being a i mean this is where sort of you might do this more as a clinical psychologist than a just a straightforward community psychologist so colleagues in manchester for example might not work so much on the mental health aspects because they're uh, really interested in the economy stuff so there's people in in, in manchester for example who, who are creating working with others to create collective action around something called the steady state um, economy or the degrowth economy. So they're putting forward proposals for, for Manchester to be a degrowth, become a degrowth economy in, in the COVID recovery, um, which means not growing economically. Um, anyway, but the uh, another way, if you're a clinical psychologist you know, or, or an or aspiring clinical psychologist that you could see if there's ways that you can get involved with the kind of strategy level for the borough around mental health and well-being. Um, but I think one, one thing that's going to be clear is we can't, we won't be able to work with people. There's going to be huge recession. You know, people are going to be unemployed, a lot of uncertainty, all normal reactions to adverse circumstances, certainly not worthy of being <laughs> named disorders, but that, that we won't be able to treat people individually. So we're gonna to have to look at community responses and community level responses. And if that's already happening, that doesn't need psychologists. Um, that happens naturally, but I think there's ways that psychologists can play a role. And, and myself and a few others are part of a British Psychological Society group working on this called um, Community Resilience and Community Action 
in response to COVID-19, what role for psychology? So we're trying to answer this exact question. Um, because obviously things like mutual aid groups, which have happened, um, you know, they're, they're, that's how people are. That's how it doesn't need professional <laughs> intervention. But then there are ways that as a, well, as a citizen, you can get involved, obviously, but as a psychologist, you can support that, whether that, again, is more the kind of supporting people who are going through really hard times or reassuring people who are supporting other people um, or whether it's, you know, helping people work through any conflicts in a group um, or all of the different ways that you can bring your skills um, to group settings and to community settings. Um, and I think, so there's, so there's that aspect of it. There's the kind of more informal ways that psychologists can get involved. And then there's the more formal services that I think need to draw much more on intersectional decolonized ways of, um, supporting people, um, and learning from other other groups on how to do that, on how to provide, uh, support that is a culturally appropriate and, um, yeah, much more kind of grounded in people's uh, experiences of inequality and injustice, um, including the impacts of COVID and their in the, the unequal impacts of that. Because for many people, COVID is political, it's health, it's about health, it's about politics, it's about identity, it's, it's, it's about finances and economics, it's everything. Um, and a sort of one-to-one -one therapy approach is not going to provide uh, the right support. Um, and we need to think much more broadly in terms of how formal services offer support um, and what role psychologists might play in that. Or if psychologists at all, sometimes. <laughs> Whether we, it's Always a question be. worth asking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> are we exactly. even, are we needed right now? <laughs> exactly. Or how, yeah, if we're needed and how we're needed. Yeah. And going to the community to ask and working with the community to ask that. Yeah. Um, Amazing. Um, I might if because we've only got a couple of minutes left. So we've got 500 million questions in the chat, which we'll never get through. Folks were like uh, typing away the whole time. So um, I don't know. The fairest way to do it is I might just randomly pick one if everybody's OK with that. Um, what, ha um, what have you learned along the way that you would pass on to those who are just beginning? in terms of embedding community psychology values into practice? Ooh, that is a good question. I feel like I could, yeah, sit down with that for a while. Um, I think what I've learned is don't wait to be asked to do some community psychology practice. <laughs> um, it's likely you'll have to forge your own way but join with others. You're not, you're rarely on your own as you all are. You've joined together to give each other that sense of solidarity that you need because you are going to be a little bit disruptive <laughs> uh, or, or that's the intention. When you take on social justice and equity and prevention and, um, you know, the non-medicalization, if you're a clinical psychologist uh, of, of, of psychological health. And when you take on thinking about the economy and politics, you know, you're, you're in contested spaces all the time. And you need, A, you need that support and of, of like-minded people. Um, 
you some some people if you might need to move out of the NHS I, I feel sad about that because the NHS if you're a clinical psychologist on apologies to those if I'm speaking too much about clinical psychology but um if you it's sad because the NHS pays us to train and it's a very privileged position to be in so I I it, I found it hard to leave the NHS on those grounds because um, I think it's our duty, you know, to support it. But then I, I, I also think my, my, along with other people's aim is to try and change the NHS slightly from the outside, but you can, you can most definitely do it from the inside as well. Um, yeah, I think it's about trying to find those opportunities we have a principle at Mac UK that everything is an opportunity. And if there's a, it shows incredible initiative and leadership. If you're working in a service and you start to think about it in a more strategic way about why people are ending up in that service, whatever service it is, and thinking about it more upstream. So how can we prevent this from, from people ending up in this service? And what do we need to know in order to make that happen? And how could we try that out on a very small scale? And how can we involve the people, if it is about services, how can we involve the people who are in those services in thinking about those upstream issues? So I think it's having the confidence to think it's, it is, it's a leadership position. It's not, you shouldn't be on the back foot. Actually, your leaders should be thinking of these issues um, and having the confidence to, to, to try out some initiatives um i also say i also think that once you start to do that it starts to feel you start to feel like you know your you, those values become part of who you are personally and professionally if they're not already and so you'll start to feel great about your work and um and then that motivates you to keep going and to work hard because you end up having to do you know extra work but it, it's such a rewarding way of working to really feel like you're sharing power and you're not, um, you've not, it's not about power over others um, as much as is possible. I, again, it's not perfect, but that you want to work like that and you'll find the ways that allow it to happen. Um, and working in partnership with others, you know, and not just other psychologists, but going out and increasing who you come into contact with through getting involved in stuff locally, um, activism or whatever it is that you care about and finding different voices because they will help you as well find alternative ways in, um, into different ways of working, yeah. Amazing. Um, I, think, I think it's just something you've said there, I think is something that I'll take away from the conversation. Um, is that idea of it as a leadership role that's such a an important thing i know they've really started to stress that on our course and but it's it's when you think about the practicalities mm. and the reality of what the job looks like it, it really is it's it's not a it's not a it's not just a term we throw around it is a leadership role and 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 it's interesting to hear the ways that you can take up that leadership position um that's outside of the NHS or beyond the NHS or just beyond the systems that are currently in place and and use opportunities and use people around you mm -hmm. to um to stand up in that way and to take a step forward and to take some action that's really um it's quite inspiring <laughs> oh good yeah 
Yeah, I really liked what you said, what you said as well about respecting what's already there and yeah, just kind of building on on the strengths that the communities already have. Um, yeah, there's lots to think about that you've said. I wish we could ask you so many more questions. So no, um, that's okay. I would I would just add one more thing about humility and just just to add this at the end because I think it's important to say is like whatever we do, we have to do it with humility because psychology has caused harm, and um, I don't want to underplay that. You know, we have in many ways from the beginnings of the of the you know eugenics movement and right through to now and the way that we you know still in a part of institutionalizing uh people like we cause harm and so we have to go in with humility as well and be ready to be wrong and to be ready to apologize (laughs) get it wrong because i've had to do that a lot as well yeah thank you so much sally um it's been such a pleasure to speak with you thank you very much thank you for this amazing initiative thank you for listening to our podcast you can find us wherever you get your podcasts we are discovering community psychology we're also over on twitter at discovering community psychology and we'd love to hear from you if you have any ideas or thoughts on today's or any of our other episodes so please do get in touch Thank you.